<clears throat> Can you hear me? Okay. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, if we walk out of here this morning remembering nothing else, Lord, will we remember the 14 verses we just heard read out of your word? Lord, I pray that you would let my words be free and few and full. Lord, that I would highlight your word, not overshadow it. Would you protect my heart, Lord, in the hearts of your church? to see you high and lifted up the King of glory. Lord, and as we see you rightly, we see ourselves rightly in your light as sinners desperately in need of Jesus' blood. We ask that you would do all this in your precious and your strong and your sure name. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you have a Bible, uh, and you probably already have it open, thanks to Jonah. Thank you again, Jonah. Uh, It's Luke chapter 7. 36 through 50. Uh, so usually when Kevin asks me to preach every so often, he will tell me the, the scripture I'm preaching and exegeting, and usually it's just kind of whatever's next on the docket as we walk through Genesis or uh, here starting next week, First Peter, or whatever book we're going through. Uh, but this being a transition week, so out of Genesis, we're going to pivot to the New Testament in First Peter, correct? First Peter? Okay. Uh, next week, He just said, open text, preach whatever you want to, the whole Bible is yours, which may sound like a playground for a preacher, but it is a nightmare. (laughs) Like trying to decide on one text uh, to preach just, you know, spontaneously, spur of the moment, whatever is on your heart, can be a bit difficult. Uh, You scour the whole Bible and everything looks appealing, and if you're insecure sometimes like I am, nothing looks like you could preach it well, and so I just had to ask some questions and ask the Lord some questions, and the question I came up with is what is the aim of preaching? What specifically is preaching and preaching God's Word designed to do? What's the goal we're trying to accomplish in me standing up here for 30 or 40 minutes preaching the Scriptures to you? And the answer, I believe, is to awaken worship in the hearts of its hearers. The aim in preaching, you can maybe say it a few different ways, but the aim in preaching, the goal for me or Kevin as he stands up here week after week is to allow you to see Jesus high and lifted up. And when you see him high and lifted up, we can't help but worship him. All preaching and all spiritual discipline for that matter is aimed at pointing our minds and hearts to the glory of God as seen most fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in such a way, Uh, that the inevitable result, with the help of the Holy Spirit, of course, is God-glorifying worship. So then the question becomes, what uh, text will target that goal specifically? And you could say any text, right? The Bible is, that the goal of the Bible is to glorify God. So any text will do, but what maybe is a little bit more pinpointed towards that end? And that's how we land here in Luke chapter 7. The sermon title this morning, if you have a worship guide, it's probably on there is the equation for worship. The equation for worship, because that's exactly what this text shows us. It shows us how we grow in our love and devotion to Jesus and what that looks like when it happens. So with that said, we are here at Luke chapter 7, 36 through 15. It was now I planned to read that text, uh, but thanks to Jonah, that burden has been lifted. So, uh, the equation for worship. I want us to look at three components this morning or you could say three prerequisites, excuse me, for worship to take place. 
These will serve as our three points. They're probably, again, in your worship guide. I actually didn't look myself this morning. Uh, And if they're not, you can write them down. And if you're not taking notes, you should still write them down. So the first prerequisite for worship to take place is that we have to have an accurate self-assessment. An accurate self-assessment. Second, we must have an accurate uh, God assessment, or it may say self-awareness and God awareness. And lastly, we must be dealing with the correct currency of the kingdom. And the currency of the kingdom. So self-awareness, God awareness, and the currency of the kingdom. Another way to frame these three points would actually be to ask three questions. So we could ask the question, who am I? Who is Jesus? And then how do we marry and merge the answers to the first two questions together in a way that is coherent and consistent? So we only have really three casting roles in our text this morning. There's Jesus, of course, right? And then you have this Pharisee named Simon and this woman. The only thing we're told about her, her only descriptor in this passage is that she is a sinner, right? And our two main characters outside of Jesus present us with two types in this text. They are two polar opposite ways of relating both to themselves and to Jesus. And therefore, the way they uh, come to Jesus and they merge these two relationships is very, very different. And so because this text is narrative in nature, meaning Luke's just kind of telling a story, he's recalling an account, he's kind of putting us in the room with Jesus and this woman and the Pharisee, I just want us to kind of slow, uh, very slowly and in slow motion, kind of break down the tape and walk through this passage. And then towards the end, we'll kind of fill in the points. And we'll do it through the, uh, through the lens of each character. Uh, but first, I want to set up some context here. So uh, Gavin read verses 1 through 35. Thank you for that. That was a mouthful. And that set us up with some context. But I want to set it up a little bit more in verse 36 and kind of what we're walking into when we get into this passage. So we heard some of Luke 7 read earlier, like I said. So Jesus uh, goes into these healings, right? There's a centurion, he heals the centurion's servant. And then Jesus uh, heals this, this boy who has died. It's this woman, this widow now, her only son. And then Jesus goes into kind of exegete his identity and the identity of John the Baptist. And then he rebukes his audience for receiving neither of them, right? Not exactly a feel-good sermon. But it was common in that time that after a rabbi would teach... They would actually go back uh, to one of the religious elite's home, and they would have a meal. And this meal, this kind of occasion, was an event of sorts, and it would actually be open to the public. So the homes of the Pharisees at the time were shaped like a box, but they were hollow in the middle. And so you'd have this uh, square house, but the middle of the house would be this open courtyard. And you'd have a rustic table, some farmhouse furniture, some shabby sheet decor. It'd be real cute and, and inviting and hospitable. Right? And as the religious elites would wine and dine with this rabbi, the public would come and they would fill in the outside of this courtyard and they would serve as a sort of fly on the wall to these religious conversations, these very intelligent conversations, sort of like a uh, multi-person TED Talk. Right? This was entertainment before the, the days of Netflix and TikTok. And so that's the scene we're walking into here in verse 36. And everything's going according to plan until we reach verse 37. And in verse 37, someone enters this arena who would normally not have been allowed here. And that, of course, is this sinful woman. But rather than hide her from the scene, or kind of blot her out, put some white out, just ignore her like most people would, Luke actually wants us to notice her. We know that because of verse 37. The second verse, if you're looking at the ESV in verse 37, is the word behold. So in the Greek, that word is not actually there. It's kind of a a, a phrase, if you will. 
But that phrase that we translate behold is an imperative in the Greek, meaning it's a command. It's as if while Luke is painting this picture for us, he specifically targets this woman and he says, watch her, pay attention to her, notice her. Even though everything she does and even who she is in her identity makes you want to turn away, you should really pay attention to her. Because there's something we can learn from her as there's something Simon can learn from her. And so in this woman comes, she's hugging the outside of this courtyard wall, alabaster jar in hand, loaded with this very expensive perfume or ointment. And while she makes her way to Jesus, the conversation, I imagine, at the table continues to carry on, at least for now. Now in those days, the way they would eat is they would kind of lie down on their left side, and they would post up on their left arms. I can't really uh, do it. Maybe I could do it on stage, but I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to spare you that experience. But they would lie on their left side, post it up on their left arm, and that would leave their right hand free to eat, right? And I feel bad for the lefties of the day. I would need a bib. It'd just be everywhere. (laughs) But this is how they would eat, and they would do this because it would position their feet back and away from the table. It would be the furthest uh, body part from the table, right? Because in those days, before the advent of running water and laundry pods and high-efficiency washing machines, feet were easily the dirtiest part of the body, Right? And I think we can all agree, no matter where you line up with the five points of Calvinism or what you believe about pre-trib, post-trib, nobody likes dirty feet in their face when they're trying to eat dinner. Right? That's just gross. We can all land on that, I believe. And yet, that's exactly the part of the body that this woman pinpoints in her worship to Jesus. Scholars say she probably intended to anoint Jesus' head, but it simply wasn't available for her. And so rather than call attention to herself or interrupt this gathering or or wait for a better opportunity, this woman chose to do all that she had with all that she could. And she gave the best she had to offer to the most undignified part of Jesus. So she kneels low at Jesus' feet and she's weeping over his feet. Then she begins to wash his feet with her tears. And then hair unadorned, so there was no covering for her head or her hair. This was a very vulnerable position for a woman in those days. She begins to dry his feet with her hair. Right? Scholars say this was probably her in a very scandalous way relating to Jesus to a man the only way she knew how. And finally, she breaks open this priceless flask of ointment. It's probably a family heirloom and maybe the most expensive thing that she owns. And she douses it on Jesus' feet. She empties it entirely. You could even say she wastes it. And all the while, Jesus never bats an eye. I don't even think he honestly looked back to, to call attention to her with, her with his gaze and with where he was looking. He just continued uh, in the conversation and he continued to read the hearts of those around the room and around the table. And one of those hearts he was reading was the very Pharisee that was hosting him. And so Simon, seeing this woman worship in this way, thinks to himself, so catch that, Simon thinks this, but we, knew, uh, we know about it because Jesus knew about it. That's one of the perks to being the Son of God, apparently. Watch your thoughts around Jesus. He's here, by the way, right now. Watch your thoughts. But Simon thinks, hey, if this man were a, fa- a prophet, if he were who he says he is, if he were who the crowds are proclaiming him to be, he would know who this woman is. He'd know the kind of things that she's done. He would know that she is immoral, that she is uh, dirty, that she is unclean. And that her uncleanliness, by her touching him, was going to make him unclean. That's what Simon is thinking. He's judging both Jesus and this woman right here. 
But rather than addressing Simon's argument head on, Jesus kind of gets into the back door of Simon's heart and he does it with a story. And this is so gracious of Jesus because to go toe-to-toe with Simon would have raised all the defenses for him, right? By, by Jesus using this illustration, this narrative, and this story, this is Jesus trying to win this Pharisee's heart. How gracious of Jesus. He's already won the woman's heart. Now he's going after the Pharisee. He wants the older brother and the prodigal son. And so Jesus, with this scandalous woman still weeping at his feet, tells this story to Simon. He says, Simon, I want to tell you something. Simon can sense, maybe knowing this is kind of like a Jesus-y trap, like he's walking into this, but we're, we're, you know, the roller coaster started, there's no getting off now. And so he says, a money lender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50, or denarii, excuse me. Now for context, a denarii is worth about a day's wages for kind of a lower middle class worker. So this is maybe two months salary for the 50 denarii debtor. And it's probably two years salary for the 500, right? And so 50 denarii, two months wages, is repayable. It'll take some hard work. If you're hustling on the side, you could get it repaid somewhat quickly, maybe a few months, maybe a year, but 500 denarii, two years worth of wages, like whatever you make right now, double it and think you get a statement for that in the mail from your credit card company. It would scare the bejeebies out of you, right? So you tack on interest, inflation, the rising cost of living, and you're talking about years of trying to pay off this debt, if you could pay it off at all. And Jesus says that because neither of them could pay it back with their debt. I don't know what happened, camel accident, they can't work anymore, Whatever the case may be, neither one of them can pay off their debt. The lender cancels the debt of both. And Jesus says, which one will love him more? So this is a really straightforward story, right? I think we all know the answer without even having to read it in the text. This is so simple that my five and six-year-old got this right the other night. So it's bedtime. We're doing our Bible story. We do it every single time, I promise. (laughs) Uh, Just kidding. That was a a joke. It was bad. Um, we do do it every, we try to do it every night. Anyway, unless they're not listening, which is like 75% of the time. And then sometimes it doesn't happen. Um, it's just like a call to repentance as we shoo them in bed. Uh, but my five and six year old, we're doing bedtime Bible story. And so I'm like, hey, let, let's read this, this text out of Luke chapter seven in their little children's Bible. And so we read it and I pose the question to them, hey, who's going to love Jesus more? Who will be more grateful And they get it right, the 500 denarii debtor, the one who owes more. I was really proud. I thought Jesus was really just high-fiving Kate and I for a moment, and then they started yelling at each other, so kind of all the pride went away in a moment. But anyway, it was a thing. But this is a really straightforward story, and there's really only two takeaways from this story here. The first is that both debtors owed a debt they could not repay. Right, One owes more, one owes less, but Jesus says neither of them can repay the debt. Which means it's not about how much one owed in relation to the other. It's simply about the fact that neither one of them could repay the lender. And so graciously, he forgave them both. Now, Jesus doesn't go into this, but we do need to recognize there are two possible responses from the debtors at this point in the story. The first response would be to accept the lender's pardon and to walk away free from debt and full of gratitude, or as Jesus says, full of love. The second response would be to actually reject this lender's offer and to insist that you pay off the debt yourself, which will make you both very tired and very proud. Our sinner chooses the first response. Simon chooses the second. The second thing to notice here is that because neither could pay off the debt, the one with the greater debt will therefore have the greater amount of gratitude or love 
which Jesus says explains the sinner's behavior. Her lavish worship over Jesus is responsive from Christ's lavish forgiveness of her. On the other hand, Simon's apathy toward Jesus is a result of the ignorance he has regarding his own sin, his own debt. In fact, I think Simon would actually deny that he has any debt to begin with at this story. He wouldn't relate to the 50, 50 denarii guy. He relates to the guy who has an even balance with the lender. I don't owe you anything, Jesus. I pay off my debt every single day, one act of prideful obedience after the other. So Jesus goes on to exegete their actions and the attitudes that produce them. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? And I'm sure at this point in the story, Simon's probably thinking, do I see her? Of course I see her. Everybody sees her. She has interrupted this entire occasion. The only person in the room who doesn't seem to see this woman, Jesus, is you. And Jesus says, I entered your house, but you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears. She's wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, Simon, but from the time that I come in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. And you didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment or perfume which is of much more value. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, 500 plus denarii worth, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now this was a culture, uh, very different from our own, and it's a culture where hospitality is paramount. It's extremely important. This is an an honor-shame culture, and we're kind of getting a little more into this with like cancel culture and, you know, people have a following and they, so there's this kind of play now between honor and shame, but we don't quite understand this level of hospitality here in 21st century Western America. But it was common in the day that when a guest would enter your home, there were three things that were pretty much uh, universally practiced to show honor and hospitality. Jesus talks about them both. He breaks them down point by point, but just uh, to be kind of upfront, the first is that you would wash your guest's feet, right? You don't want Stanley Steamer coming over every other day to clean your carpets. You wash your guest's feet, you give them clean feet, you protect your house. The second, you would greet them with a holy and platonic kiss. So nothing weird here, but you would kiss them. It was common in the day. And the third, you would anoint their head with some sort of oil. And all of this was common knowledge. It was very much expected in a gathering like this, but Simon does none of these to Jesus. Doesn't do the first one. And you may be thinking, well, maybe Simon forgot, right? He's a busy guy. He's hosting Jesus after all. Surely he's got a lot to do. He wants to make sure the place looks presentable, a la Martha, elsewhere in the Gospels. But I don't think that's the case. And I say that for two reasons. First off, I don't think Simon forgot to honor Jesus for the sheer fact that he's a what? He's a Pharisee. Right? This man memorized the Torah back and forth. The, the scriptures that you and I, even though we may have been Christians for 10, 15 years, we need to go to the front of the Bible to see which page it's on. He's got that in his head. The whole thing. This man has memorized the law. He judges people based on this law. He is, you could say, a professional perf- uh, perfectionist. He's a type 1 on the Enneagram, and he's the tip of the spear. He doesn't forget anything, especially something that would have made him look bad publicly. Images everything to these guys, right? As the saying goes, perception is reality. This was an intentional snob by Simon. The second reason I don't think Simon forgot to honor Jesus was simply for the fact that he didn't like him, right? He wasn't a fan of Jesus. And this was rooted both in Jesus' endorsement 
and his fulfillment of the ministry of John the Baptist. We heard this earlier in our reading, but John was the forerunner to Jesus. So when I was a kid, my parents were divorced. Uh, We can go into that another time. I'm sitting on a couch. Uh, But we would travel back and forth from my dad's house to my mom's house, and we take these little back roads in South Carolina. And oftentimes, you would come across this little, like, Chevy S10, like the smallest truck anybody had. The little Mazda trucks, you know what I'm talking about? They're, like, 50 years old, but they still run every single one of them, I swear. They're, like, smaller than, like, your hybrid, you know, two-door coupe. They're so small, but they would have this flag and these lights that says wide load ahead, right? Or there's, there's something coming behind me, like a mobile home or crane or, you know, dump truck or whatever. And it was warning you, there is something behind me that is going to displace you. Like put your phone down for a few seconds and pay attention or you're going to be roadkill, right? Simon is the little Mazda truck, or excuse me, John the Baptist is the little Mazda truck telling people something is coming you need to prepare for. You need to look out for him. He's kind of a big deal, right? You need to be ready when he comes. That's the role of John the Baptist in the scriptures. And so uh, Jesus, right, w- uh, was this person who came after John the Baptist and where uh, probably the Pharisees thought that John the Baptist's message had been silenced by his execution, So Herod gets drunk, kind of a long story. Anyway, John the Baptist is killed. The Pharisees are probably really glad to get this guy off their back because he openly shamed the Pharisees. He would call them out on their sin. And just as he is silenced, Jesus picks his message up and he continues to take it forward. And so they didn't like Jesus for this reason, but they also didn't like the gospel that he preached, mainly because it threatened the chokehold the Pharisees held over society, specifically over the poor and the marginalized. So all that to say, I don't think this is Simon forgetting to honor Jesus here. This is an intentional snub. And by Simon withholding, intentionally withholding hospitality from Jesus, he is intentionally withholding honor from him. And by doing that, he's actually directing all the honor back at himself. I think this is a really passive, aggressive way to suggest that if Jesus isn't being honored here, it's because Simon should be honored. This is Simon subtly suggesting this party is not about you at all, Jesus. It is about me. You're in my house. We play by my rules. And this flows from Simon's self-awareness. To paraphrase from the Apostle Paul, who you may know was once a Pharisee himself, Simon thinks I've got the pedigree, I've got the passion, and when it comes to the law, I am blameless, right? But where Simon had a high view of himself... His counterpart, this woman, has a low view of herself. Where Simon elevated himself, this woman humbles herself. And where Simon directed all the honor back at himself, this woman directs all the honor and attention away from herself, namely on to Jesus of Nazareth. And so because this woman is aware of herself, she's actually now in a position to be aware of Jesus. She wasn't self-deceived like Simon was. She's acutely aware of all of her sin and all of her shame, which opens her up to receive all of Christ's mercy and all of his grace. In fact, I think if uh, this woman could have read Luke's gospel later on after it was written, she would have 100% consented and agreed to his label of her as a sinner. Right? The word in the Greek here for sinner doesn't just mean that she has sinned. It's more grievous than that. It's more pervasive. The word is a noun here, not an adjective, which means that sin isn't just something she does. Sin is who she is. As one commentator put it, she was a professional sinner. 
Most scholars agree this was probably a prostitute, which means she literally made a living by defiling the law. And this woman knows it. She is well aware of it. She's not proud of it. I don't think by any means. We don't get that indication from the scriptures. But she knows all about her sin. And she takes ownership of it. And there's a principle at play here I want us to see, and it's this. That our assessment of who we are will always lay the foundation for who we believe and receive Jesus to be. Our assessment of who we are will always lay the foundation for who we believe and receive Jesus to be. And I get that talking about self-awareness in a pulpit may sound like liberal theology or kind of 21st century self-help Christianity, like I got this sermon right next to the Oprah book in Barnes and Nobles, right? This is not the case. It was John Calvin who said, without knowledge of the self, there is no knowledge of God. That's John Calvin. I don't think anybody would accuse Calvin of being liberal in his theology. He goes on to say, our wisdom insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. He says that these two are so closely connected, it's hard to tell which precedes the other. It's like a double helix of a DNA. They're just coiled so tightly together, it's very hard to parse them apart. And so where we increase in, in true and right knowledge of the self, we should increase in true and right knowledge of God. And where we increase in true and right doctrine of God, we should increase in our awareness and understanding of ourselves and our condition. So if you view yourself as Simon did, right, as kind of enough on your own, and you're basically good, you can handle life, you're able to measure up to the subjective scale you've kind of constructed in your head, and you compare well to those around you, then you will find Jesus useless at best and offensive at worst, Simon's attitude towards Jesus is indicative of his, of his attitude towards himself. So because Simon fails to see himself as he actually is, he also fails to see Jesus for who he actually is. It's like the eyes of his heart have been given the wrong prescription lens and everything is distorted, right? Life looks like a house of mirrors to Simon. And so because Simon doesn't identify as a sinner, he therefore has no category and no need for a savior, as Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And Simon doesn't even detect a low-grade fever. So Jesus and his gospel are no help at all. In fact, they only serve to threaten the false sense of autonomy and control that Simon has worked very, very hard to accumulate. And Simon will never let that go outside of a very radical work of repentance. He would rather drive uh, nails through Jesus' hands and feet than bow the knee and call him king. Self-deception may seem benign, but in the end, it leads to death. On the other hand, if you see yourself as this simple woman does, right, as someone who can't climb out of the hole that she has dug herself into, then at the least, you will find Jesus to be compelling. And at best, you'll find him to be the Son of God and the King of glory that he actually is. It's only when we accurately understand who we are that we can actually see Christ for who he is. Which brings us to our last prerequisite for worship, and that's the currency of the kingdom. The currency of the kingdom. So Jesus does two things in this text that were very radical at the time. We kind of take him for granted now, especially if you've grown up in church. But they made him very unpopular with the religious elites like Simon and his constituents. So the first thing that Jesus did with it was very scandalous in his day is he claimed that it was faith that saves, not works. Right? He said it wasn't your law-keeping, it's not your lineage, 
God can raise up rocks to be children of Abraham. He doesn't need your Jewishness, so to speak. And that's not a cut on, on that ethnicity at all. But Jesus says it's your faith that God is impressed with. Nothing else. We see this earlier in John, or excuse me, in Luke chapter 7 uh, that Gavin read for us. Right? Jesus was impressed with the faith of a Roman centurion, a Gentile, a Gentile of all people. The second thing that Jesus did that was so radical and so offensive is that he claimed to be God. He claimed to be God. He said things that only God can say, and he did things that only God can do. He does it here in verse 48. He tells the sinner, your sins are forgiven. So the Pharisees would forgive sins, but they would do it by proxy of God and his law. So maybe somebody comes and they're repentant, and they kind of go through with whatever uh, laws are in place for them to repent of their sins and to atone for them. There's a sacrifice made, the whole nine yards, right? And the Pharisees would say something to the degree of God saves you. Or you're forgiven, right? On the basis of this, Jesus took the middleman out. He just said, your sins are forgiven. They're like, wait, you're, you're kind of missing something here, Jesus. And Jesus didn't say anything back, right? He doesn't kind of soften the blow. He doesn't correct his statement. He just lets it land with all of its weight. And so we pick up on this. That, that says the religious elites around the table started to mumble, who is this man who even forgives sins? Which, to paraphrase, is this guy, uh, them saying, who does, who does this guy think that he is? God? And, and that's, exactly, that's exactly what Jesus wants to the, them to conclude. He doesn't soften the blow because they're drawing the correct conclusions. Does he say that he's God? That's exactly what Jesus is saying, and he makes no apologies for it. In fact, Jesus seems surprised when people fail to understand this about him. So when our sinful woman is face down at his feet in a puddle of tears and perfume out of her love for Jesus and his work for her, Jesus doesn't interrupt her. Right? He doesn't say, hey, that's a little bit too much. You're taking it too far. This is getting really awkward. Could you please get up? You've gone uh, too far. This is really not that big of a deal. No, Jesus praises this woman for her worship of him. And what Jesus is doing here is he is teaching everyone else in the room that she is the only one who gets it right. She's the only one who sees him as he actually is. This is God in flesh paving a new way back to the Father, one that is based on faith and not on works, and yet she's the only one worshiping. Why? Why is she the only one worshiping? It's because she's the only one who sees her depravity, who sees Christ's glory, and by faith receives Christ's mercy. This is what faith is. And Jesus says, this is the key to the kingdom of God. We come to God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, or we don't come at all. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on this text, says, Having our sins uh, freely and fully forgiven is the mainspring and lifeblood of devotion to Christ. He says, The true explanation of the deep love with which this woman displayed were all traceable to one cause— that though sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. He goes on to point, uh, to point out that her love was the effect of her forgiveness, not the cause. It was the consequence, not the condition. It was the result, not the reason. And it was the fruit, not the root. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. This is what theologians call passive righteousness, and it's the only kind that counts before the throne of God. But to receive this kind of righteousness, we need two things. We have to see our condition as sinners, and we have to see Jesus as our ready and willing Savior. And when that happens, Christ's righteousness becomes our own, and in response, 
All that is left to say is thank you, thank you, thank you, and to worship Jesus at his feet. Let's pray.